Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Justin Arner from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mary Mulcahy, Associate Professor and Chief of Sports Medicine at Loyola University. Dr. Mulcahy was the senior author of the paper titled, Comminent Tibial Tubercle Osteotomy Reduces the Risk of Revision Surgery After Medial Patellofemoral Ligament Reconstruction for the Treatment of Patellar Instability. This is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, Dr. Mulcahy, and thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thanks so much, uh, Justin, for having me here. I'm really excited to discuss this study, and just huge congratulations to you and all the other um, Arthroscopy Journal podcast hosts for the huge success uh, of the podcast. It's always fun to listen to. Thank you. Yeah, we just got a note that we're uh, increasing more and more subscribers, so we're excited, and thanks to you for doing a few of these now. I know it's a, a great learning experience for all of us, so appreciate that and want to congratulate you on your study. And I think this is an important study because certainly the pendulum has swung a little bit away from maybe TTO and some studies have discussed MPFL in isolation. So tell us a little bit how you got interested in this topic yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think certainly we have a huge amount of discussion in the sports medicine literature and at our meetings. And we just had Anna a couple of weeks ago, uh, really trying to identify the best or maybe most appropriate treatment for patients with recurrent patellar instability and whether that's MPFL alone or, you know, if and when uh, TTO should be added in addition to that. Um, and so I really became interested in looking at specifically at the complications following MPFL uh, versus MPFL and TTO so that we could have overall better understanding of potential issues that are associated with the procedures. And I have a huge interest in women's sports medicine in particular, and given the predilection for patellar instability in adolescent females, I'm certainly always wanting to learn more about how to best treat these patients. Right. Certainly a complicated and not a one-size-fits-all type of approach to these, so it takes a lot of thinking. And I noticed your uh, database that you use is Pearl Diver, and I've talked to a few other people about, about this in the podcast, but can you give us a little explanation about how you use that and what it is exactly? Yeah, absolutely. So Pearl Diver, it's a large database. It's a commercially available claims database, and it contains, contains de-identified records of about 144 million patients in the United States over a period of uh, 2010 to 2020. And the data is collected by an independent data aggregator that includes all health insurance payers. And then researchers, uh, you can extract data depending on your topic of interest, but you extract the data based on ICD-9 or 10 codes, depending on the diagnosis, and then also on CPT codes. Uh, it is, it's a huge database. It is uh, certainly somewhat complex, complex and complicated uh, to use. It's, uh, they, they um, like Pearl Diver offers training and sort of education on how to use it. Uh, I think it's when you're using it within your institution, I think it's very helpful to have some people who are really familiar with it so they can work with the nuances. It's hard to bring new people continuously into projects using Pearl Diver. So those are just some tips and tricks sort of for anybody who's considering using Pearl Diver for, uh, for research. Great. Yeah, it sounds like a great resource. And certainly like this paper, we've seen a lot of good ones in the arthroscopy journal about it. So tell us a little bit about your study and what you found. For sure. So the purpose of this particular study was to compare post-op complication rates between patients who underwent MPFL reconstruction versus concomitant MPFL and TTO in this large-scale study. Um, and we looked at rates of post-op complications at one and two years post-operatively. They were obtained from the two cohorts. And then we assessed complications, um, including infection, subsequent procedures for post-op knee stiffness, patella fracture, and the need for revision MPFL reconstruction. 
specifically in the study, we found that the MPFL reconstruction and TTO cohort exhibited a significantly lower rate of revision surgery at two years when compared to the MPFL reconstruction group alone. We also, um, in terms of looking at uh, the procedure, so independent of the index procedure, patients who were young under the age of 21 had significantly lower rates of requiring procedures for knee stiffness at two years and any complication at two years uh, when compared to older patients. And it's sad to think just over the age of 21, you're not old yet. Uh, but um, it, we also found that males displayed a significantly lower rate of requiring procedures for knee stiffness than females. And importantly, that tobacco use was associated with a significantly higher rate of post-op infection at two years. You know, all really important findings. And I I feel the same way as you're kind of alluding to. The more I read these studies about older patients and the older I get, it makes me uh, you know, stop back and, and think about our own patients. So it's a very good point. You know, the risk factors for recurrence and complications you managed a little bit. Tell us a little bit about, you know, has this these findings impacted your study or what do you really consider in your practice in these patients uh, based on the risk factors, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And um, certainly we look at this a lot in the literature. There are many risk factors that contribute to the, the risk of recurrent instability, um, you know, including young age, right? Females certainly uh, contribute. And then um, other anatomic risk factors, including trochlear dysplasia, patella alta, patella tilt, abnormal patellar tilt, limb alignment, overall limb alignment, and then um, increased TT, uh, TG distance. Um, so those are all things to take into account. And then we just highlighted some of the key complications that certainly that we identified in our study. So it's important to keep those in mind as well. And um, we know, you know, uh, MPFL is actually uh, quite successful in reducing the rates of subsequent dislocation, but it is associated with some complications, including knee stiffness, patella fracture, recurrent instability. There can be failure of the graft, um, wound complications uh, rarely, but can happen, and then uh, potentially painful hardware. So in my practice, um, I can you know take uh, many of these things into account, importantly, age and patient sex, certainly uh, patella alta and focusing on the caton de champ, um, and then looking at TTTG, uh, distance. We, you know, traditionally in the literature, we're talking about greater than 20, but I think we have to take all of these risk factors into account um, when we're determining uh, treatment plans. Trochlear dysplasia is also an important factor that I consider. And then overall ligamentous laxity. So evaluating patients based on the Baton score, I think is also an important component. Yeah, great summary. And uh, you have a really nice introduction in your paper that really summarizes the measures and the data regarding patellar instability and uh, evaluating trochlear dysplasia. Can you tell us a little bit about um, other measures? You know, you did talk about the patellar height and CD ratio, but do you have any cutoffs, you know, CD ratio above 1.4 or your favorite measures for trochlear dysplasia or how to evaluate those in more detail? Yeah, thanks. That's really a great question. I think in approaching these patients, before we're even looking at the measurements and numbers, I think you know it's really, really important that we obtain a very detailed history, uh, just in terms of things like number of patellar dislocations, when has it occurred, were any or all of them traumatic, or are they occurring during daily activities? Certainly, what we want information about any previous, uh, you know, any history of previous surgery, or uh, even a history of contralateral patellar instability. So on exam. Uh, you know, I mentioned I do will evaluate for overall ligamentous laxity using the Baton score. Um, certainly, I'm evaluating for the presence of a J sign, and we talk, you know, at meetings and literature about this sort of jumping J sign or a very pronounced uh, J sign, which we know indicates uh, patellar maltracking. I will also, of course, um, evaluate patients using the patellar apprehension test. 
And then on, on imaging, you know, I want to get standard knee x-rays, especially a very good lateral x-ray. We're going to rely uh, on that and evaluate that pretty uh, significantly to evaluate for trochlear dysplasia. And then I think it's important to, um, to get long leg standing films to evaluate for overall uh, limb alignment. And then um, we are, I'd say, essentially 100% of the time, right, getting an MRI to evaluate the soft tissues and then also uh, to evaluate the cartilage. Um, and then, I mean, in terms of trochlear dysplasia, uh, that is certainly a very, very important consideration. Um, and, you know, we're looking at on the lateral knee x-ray, um, we want to have a perfect lateral. Uh, and then we're also, we're looking for things like a crossing sign, right? Where the trochlear floor, floor crosses anterior to lateral femoral condyle, which is indicative uh, of sort of a, um, that the trochlea is not fully developed, that it's flat and shallow. We're looking for a trochlear spur, which we see in uh, more severe cases of trochlear dysplasia. Um, and also we're looking for a double, double contour sign, which is representative of the hypoplastic medial trochlear facet. Uh, and then on the sunrise view, the 45 degree sunrise view, that's a helpful view as well to evaluate the sulcus angle. Um, and so those are all things that I'm doing for my patients that are presenting uh, with patellar instability. Yeah, that's a great summary. It, certainly when I first started in practice, it, was was good for me to go through a list and make a list of all those things that you went through, like you've taught us and Dave, Dave D. Duck, and there was a great panel that you folks had at Anna going through all that. So systematically approaching that is, is a great idea. One thing you mentioned about smokers and complications, and I know um, there's been discussions about TTOs and smokers and vitamin D. Do you uh, test people for vitamin D if you're doing a TTO? Will you consider a TTO in someone who's a smoker. Just curious about those circumstances. Yeah, that is an excellent, excellent question. Um, I don't currently routinely test my patients for vitamin D preoperatively, but I think it's a great point and something that we should consider. And I think we're discussing this more and more in the orthopedic literature and how this can impact fracture healing, or in this case, healing of the TTO. Um, I think it's really important to consider, especially for patients that have any risk factors for low vitamin D. Like, you know, me, I went to medical school in upstate New York. So I think that's a risk factor to have low vitamin D when you don't see much sunlight, uh, or certainly if, if uh, patients have a related medical condition. But but I think we've seen from other studies in the literature too, even in patients where you don't necessarily suspect it, they may have a lower vitamin D level than you anticipate. So certainly something to keep in mind. And then for patients who smoke, um, you know, I explained to them the importance of quitting smoking to help with healing of the osteotomy. That's really critical. Uh, and I would absolutely plan to test them prior to moving forward with the procedure. You know, fortunately for us with dealing with relatively young patients and healthy and active, this doesn't come up very often, uh, but we need to keep it in mind. And we also, you know, some other things to keep in mind for these patients in particular is um, that we have to make sure, I mean, when talking about the TTO in particular, is that we have to make sure that they are able to comply with post-op rehab and understand, uh, and we as physicians and surgeons need to understand their overall goals, right? What are their what are their goals with the procedure? Is it just being able to function uh, fairly normally with day-to-day -day activities, or are they wanting to return to playing a specific sport? So one comment related to that. So we are actually right now just finalizing a systematic review, evaluating return to play following MPFL versus MPFL and TTO. 
And in that, we actually found that fear of re-injury, type of sport played, and a positive post-op apprehension test all influence return to play uh, following patellar stabilization surgeries. And of course, trochlear dysplegia, and then as we would anticipate, incorrect femoral tunnel positioning are also associated with lower subjective knee function scores. Um, And so we're just encouraging more research in this area. Uh, But I think these are all important things to keep in mind when we're uh, planning or considering doing a TTO in our patients. Yeah, great point. I look forward to seeing that study and hopefully you, you maybe I'll be back again if if we can talk you into it to speak about it if it's in the arthroscopy journal. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah. One thing, you know, that I think much like anterior instability of the shoulder, that we're really progressing with first-time dislocators, you know, is it really benign to allow these patients to dislocate twice? Right now, it seems to be the standard of care that we're not always operating on first-time patellar dislocators, but Tell us how you approach that patient in your your office. Yeah, this is a really good point of discussion, and I agree with you that um, we've kind of we've evolved a lot, even in just the past like five years or so, in in um, how we approach first time patellar dislocators. Much as we've seen uh, sort of our our change in focus with our first time shoulder dislocators. So, um, you know, historically, certainly first time uh, you know patients with a first time patellar dislocation have been treated non-operatively, but there's good evidence in the literature that shows that up to about 40% of patients who are treated non-operatively experience re-dislocation. And so patients who are younger, like young, uh, younger than age 16, have contralateral instability and have uh, trochlear dysplasia are, are, have higher risks of recurrent instability. Uh, and so those are patients that you may want to consider intervening earlier. Um, personally, when I see a patient with a first-time patella dislocation, I, of course, obtain x-rays if those have not been uh, done already. And then I'll order an MRI to evaluate for a possible loose body, uh, because certainly that would move us to surgery right away. And then uh, for these patients, I'll often put them in a brace just uh, initially just to help things calm down. Um, I'll get them started in physical therapy, of course, after obtaining the MRI uh, to work on knee range of motion, gait training, strengthening, et cetera. Right. Yeah, it's a, certainly an evolving topic. You know, regarding bracing, um, tell us how you use that, either patients that are treated non-operatively or even post-operatively. I know there's a recent study showing that just a knee sleeve may be as effective as some of these more J-braces. I personally use the J-brace, especially non-operatively, but tell us how you use bracing in your practice. Um, yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a really good question. And in my practice, um, I for patients that I am treating non-op, um, I will usually use the J-brace, J just as you mentioned. I like that. Patients tend to tolerate it well. Um, for my patients who are immediately post-op, I actually will just use a hinge knee brace, pretty similar to what I'll use for my post-op ACL. Um, and I keep it locked in extension uh, until their quads are strong enough to keep the knee from buckling. I do allow them to have completely unrestricted knee range of motion from the beginning. Um, and then they often will be able to wean out of that brace over a period of about four to six weeks. Uh, but definitely, I, I have my eye on the the literature too, and trying to figure out what is best. What do we actually need? Uh, and I think we've evolved in a lot in that regard too, with our with our post op care for our ACL patients. Mm-hmm. Great. You know, switching gears a little bit back to MPFL and TTO and combination, and and I agree with your findings. I think TTO is really a powerful surgery and has an important role in the correct patient, like you mentioned. Are there times where you're performing? Uh, a TTO without an MPFL? Are you ever performing an MPFL repair with a TTO? Or tell us how MPFL fits if you've decided you're going to do a TTO as well. 
Yeah, there's, those are all really important things to consider and certainly have a lot of options when we're uh, moving towards surgery in these patients. So um, I guess I'll start with the MPFL repair. Um, you know, I think it's when we say like, do we ever do this or do we always do uh, that? Um, I think, you know, in medicine, it's difficult to say always or never. There's always some sort of variability in there. Uh, for me personally, I haven't really found a huge role for MPFL repair in my practice. Um, so when I'm operating on these patients, I tend to reconstruct the MPFL. And then when we're looking specifically at graft choice, I think it really comes down to surgeon preference, you know, whether you use allograft or autograft. Uh, we did publish a study back in 2021 looking at um, that specific topic and found that patients undergoing MPFL with either autograft or allograft really can both expect to experience improvement in their clinical outcomes uh, and that subjective outcomes improved to a similar degree in both groups, but that graft failure was more frequently observed in patients with autograft. So you may consider using allograft more often, uh, but um, really it comes down to, to overall preference of the surgeon. And then when trying to decide, you know, MPFL in isolation or in combination with a TTO, um, you know, I take into account all the important factors that we've discussed, including the patient's history, their overall ligamentous laxity, the presence of a J-sign and how significant that is, and then imaging findings, certainly. Um, and if the patient overall has fairly normal alignment um, and uh, no major uh, anatomic abnormalities, I tend to perform an MPFL in isolation. But for patients who are presenting, having already had some type of surgery for patellar instability, you know, whether that was an MPFL repair or potentially a previous MPFL reconstruction or a lateral release, which in 2023, we really, that is not really being done in isolation. But for those patients, I would move towards performing MPFL and a TTO. Oh, great, great explanation. Thank you. And regarding those skeletally immature patients, I know at the ANA meeting, there was a case that was discussed about that so tell us how you approach the skeletal immature patient, say with someone with an elevated TTTG that you really would like to do a TTO on. Are you uh, considering maybe doing that? It was discussed at the ANA meeting. If the growth plates are closing, will you just do an isolated MPFL reconstruction? Will you try to get them to wait if, if it seems like a reasonable circumstance and do a TTO later? I feel you know that's not a common scenario, but certainly a difficult one. Yeah, this is a very challenging problem. And so certainly for our really young patients that have, a, you know, a lot of growth remaining, we don't want to perform a TTO in those patients. For patients that are getting close to skeletal maturity, I mean, I think it's something that you could consider for sure. And, and, and there'd be less reservation overall in that situation than patients who are much younger and still have, you know, several years to grow. Um but of course, we have to be really careful in these patients, even with some growth remaining, how we position our femoral tunnel and those skeletally immature patients. Um, there's been a lot of excellent, very elegant work done by Dr. Miho Tanaka and others looking at different procedures for to consider in our skeletally immature patients, uh, especially those that have a lot of growth remaining. There was um, a study actually published just recently, uh, so 2023, looking at um, Physeal sparing anatomic reconstruction of the MPFL using allograft in skeletally immature patients. And they found uh, the authors in this case that it was safe and effective. Um, and 
that uh, failure rates, interestingly, decreased when MPFL was performed concomitantly with TTO, right? So more supporting evidence. Uh, and then one other study, uh, Robbie Westerman uh, published back in 2019, that found that MPFL reconstruction in skeletally immature patients is a, is a very viable, great treatment option, leading to significant improvement in patient-reported outcomes um, with redislocation rates actually less than 5% at five years. So lots and lots of evidence to support the efficacy of MPFL alone in these patients uh, but it is, it's a challenging problem when they have other anatomic abnormalities, a really high TTTG uh, distance. Um, but I think still there's a lot of reservation. If they have still uh, several years to grow, I would not uh, perform a TTO in those patients. All right. Great points. It, mentioning before, you know, about patella alta, tell us, I find this personally sometimes a little bit tricky. When do you decide to distalize your TTOs and do you have any tricks about distalization? Certainly it makes me a little bit nervous uh, having that hinge uh, being broken and then overlapping the bone and making sure you're going to have a, a good union and not distalizing them too much versus enough. Tell us how you approach uh, the more distalization uh, portion of a TTO. Yeah, I agree with you. The reservations that you mentioned, uh, those are really important considerations. And certainly much more often than not, I'm doing an anromedialization than a distalization. Um, but uh, in cases where uh, patella alta is a very important consideration, where Catan de Champ is greater than 1.2, you had asked that before, um, you know, TTO with distillation can be, you know, certainly I wouldn't hesitate to perform that concomitantly with MPFL to decrease patellar height and, and hopefully, of course, reduce the recurrence risk of instability. But um, but yes, I'm doing this much less often than an AMZ or sort of a Fulkerson type osteotomy. And I do worry about uh, when that, you know, the hinge is broken, which is a requirement, obviously, with distillization. Um, and so this, uh, yeah, I'm just not doing this as often as, a, as an AMZ TTO. Great. And to, to wrap up here a little bit, tell us a little bit about your preferred techniques for MPFL, whether it's, you know, onlay, oligraft, autograft, or basically any tips and pearls. All of our listeners certainly would love to hear about any uh, suggestions and thoughts you have regarding that. Yes, absolutely. There are so many different techniques, very interesting and, and all quite effective. So uh, for me, I mean, just to start, my patients are positioned supine. I'll use that kind of knee grip or paint roller type thing at the foot of the bed in order to hold the foot and the knee at 90 degrees of flexion um, when I'm identifying the position for the femoral tunnel. I tend to use an allograft, usually posterior, anterior, tib. And then the length of the allograft is actually really important. So I want it to be at least 24 to 26 centimeters. Um, so I will fold the graft over. I'll actually secure, uh, the, secure it initially on the, the femur and then have the two limbs going up to the patella. So um, I'll make the incision just medial to the patella and expose kind of that medial edge of the patella from the equator to the proximal pole, then dissect through the soft tissue and identifying uh, that layer where you can just sneak down easily and feel the medial epicondyle. And that's when you know you're in the correct layer. And you'll, you'll actually see fat. That's a good indicator of the appropriate layer. Um, and then after that, I will... Um, I actually placed two all suture anchors in the patella. The first is at the level of the equator and the second is just proximal to that. And then I just kind of set those aside. Uh, I'll position the knee at 90 degrees um, and then using a regular C-arm, which is actually positioned on the ipsilateral side of the bed, um, I will identify Schottel's point and then make an incision directly over that um, and go down, you know, position the beef pin again under direct uh, image guidance. Um, and then once that's positioned, I actually will pull the sutures from the anchors that have already been placed in the patella, pull those down through the, uh, the soft tissue window that was created, wrap them around the beef pin, secure those, and then check 
for range of motion, check for the mobility of the patella to make sure that it's not too tight. Uh, and that will confirm uh, appropriate positioning of the, of the beef pin. Um, and then just sort of standard reaming over that really to a depth of about 20 to 25 millimeters, passing the suture, pulling that out laterally. Uh, and then, as I had briefly mentioned before, I do secure the graft initially on the femur, and then I feed the two limbs up through the soft tissue window up to uh, the medial side of the patella, and then secure uh, those limbs uh, with the two anchors that were placed previously. And the knee will be in a position of 30 degrees of flexion um, while doing that. And then I actually will close the retinaculum uh, on the way out. Hey, great tips. There's certainly a lot of ways to do it. And I think uh, starting in practice and doing more and more of these, it's certainly a little bit tricky. You know, some people uh, blast through these that have done a lot of them, but really making sure we don't over tension and also not under tension is so important. And the flexion angle can be so different. So, you know, making sure you do have a glide, you know, that's not a benign surgery. So those are great tips to avoid any complications. So thanks for that. So as, as we wrap up here, I just want to thank you for sharing your results and all of your great studies and coming back on the podcast here. You know, we had a, a lot to learn continuously and certainly a study like this has really taught us a lot. And uh, again, I think TTO is really an important surgery and thanks again for all your uh, important light and patellar instability expertise here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Justin. It was a great discussion. And I agree. This is it's really important. Uh, you know, as we talk about MPFL and TTO and and certain having certainly having that in your armamentarium, but uh understanding as you just stated a minute ago that really neither of these, you know, specific procedures are benign. There's a lot of things we have to um keep in mind uh, as we're making the decision. And then also, of course, technically as we're executing this in the operating room. And so uh, certainly taking time to, to practice in the lab, uh, learning at courses, spending time with other people who are doing these surgeries all helps us. And we're learning all the time. You know, we just, like you said, had a great discussion too at Anna a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and so that helps us as we are just sort of continuing to evolve with these techniques. I certainly agree with that. So thank you so much today. Dr. Mulcahy's article titled Concomitant Tibial Tubercle Osteotomy Reduces the Risk of Revision Surgery After Immediate Patellofemoral Ligament Reconstruction for the Treatment of Patellar Instability, which is in press in the Arthroscopy Journal and is available online at arthroscopyjournal.org. Thanks so much for joining us. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time. 